We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Sort of credibility with people it has a currency with people. Um, 
because it, it can always be argued and it looks as if you're trying to de-hero heroes, right? Because mm. uh, it becomes like an emotional attachment to them. You know, they, they were heroes. They did this kind of stuff and blah, blah, blah. And you're kind of like taking it away from them. And since we've already, we've already eulogized them in this way, we've already conferred onto them honors, we have presupposed the existence of the 19 hijackers. So we can no longer even argue that point, even though I think that there is plenty of at least conceptual evidence that there was probably no one alive on those planes, period. You know, that's just my personal opinion. Well, there is another angle on it that would, in fact, reinstate the passengers on Flight 93 as heroes, just right. not in the way that we've been told. Namely that, I think it was Donald Rumsfeld who let slip oh, yeah. that Flight 93 that. had been shot down yeah, yeah. by the U.S. military. Yeah. And when you think about it, the most plausible reason for this right. is that the people on board, for some reason, were actually trying to take control of, of the, the jet back from, from whatever had officially... Well, let's know what wrong Oh, you imagine have the kind of world we would face if the people who bombed the death ball in Mosul or the people who did the bombing in Spain, or the people who attacked the United States in New York, shot down the plane over Pennsylvania and attacked the Pentagon. So, yeah, so there you go. Shot down the plane over Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, after that statement, he uh, he himself didn't uh, didn't retract it, but I don't think anybody really challenged challenged yeah. him on it directly. But uh, the media picked up on it. There's a few, there was a few stories at the time when he said that um, on CNN and a bunch of other mainstream media outlets who all said that he obviously, he obviously misspoke. Um, but it's a bit of a big misspeak because um, it's not like he kind of confused it for something else or it could be said that he confused the shooting down of Flight 93 when he really meant the shooting down of, uh, well, yeah, there's a problem. Yeah. No other plane was shot down uh, officially, uh, so there was no shoot downs of anything on 9-11. So why would he have um, used the word shoot down, which is pretty explicit? Uh, it's a pretty explicit concept. It's very different from crashed or you know, hijacked or whatever, flown into a building. Shot down involves... A plane being shot down by some—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's unambiguous, you know. So um, the fact that he said that, uh, along with the evidence for it having been shot down, uh, suggests that it was shot down. So there you go. Mm. But as to the theory of why it, uh, why it was shot down, uh, what because there was hijackers, or there were uh, there were people on flight 93 who. Uh, well, we need to look back a bit. The biggest problem, well. Let's say the first problem with the idea that there were these 19 Arab hijackers whose images, names were released by the FBI a couple of days after, they're all over the press. First obstacle this hits is that their names were not on the flight manifest. It appears that they were not actually, there were no, these names anyway were not on board. Oh, but they used assumed names. Well, everyone could be accounted for in terms of so-and-so is American citizen from this, yes, that person is missing, but we don't have these extra people, period. Right. Not just we don't have these guys. Mm. 
So I wonder if the the evidence that puts them on the plane are a couple of stills from security uh, camera footage. Some blurry stills, yeah. Blur stills that you but I assume I'm looking at so and so Muhammad Atta. Okay, right, that's him. They couldn't even give us a still of him, say, at Boston Logan Airport boarding his plane. They had to give us one of him taking a preceding flight from, I think it was Minnesota, I'm not sure. Anyway, it was an internal U.S. flight before that he was taking to get to the situation he needed to be to, to actually hijack the plane. So, none, there, therefore, there's nothing that actually places any of these names as being on the aircraft. So... Um, oh yeah, that's one plank of it. The second plank is that none of these guys, some of them were let. That there are there are people who said yes, so and so was at my flight training school. Remember, they're supposed to have flown four large seven six Boeing, their commercial aircraft, uh, expertly into pretty narrow, small targets at high speed. These guys could not get their, um, their 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 licenses to fly Cessna, Cessna aircraft. Yeah, single engine aircraft. So that's another major doubt for them being on the plane at all. Well, I mean, there's 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 the ridiculousness threshold that I think the whole thing falls down on, which is that. Finding somebody who's willing to kill himself for a cause is not entirely outside the scope of reason, right? Finding 19 people who are willing to kill themselves for a cause, being alive at the exact same time, being able to get into the United States, attend these flight schools, acquire the skills to be a pilot, which is not – piloting an aircraft is not exactly something that just any Yahoo can do. It does take some training and it does take some ability, and piloting a a large commercial aircraft does – does require and I mean precision flying a, a commercial aircraft into a building is, is a lot different from just you know flying it from one airport to the other. It's just a little bit different. There's a lot of automated systems, but you have to turn those off and fly it into a building. Uh, that requires a little bit more skill than just you know sitting in the chair and, and turning the wheel. So finding all those people who are willing to die for their cause, it seems to me a little bit, a little bit incredible. A little bit incredible for me. Nineteen people who, who you know. Yeah. Well. In previous radio shows, we saw that mind control is going on, and maybe we could hypothesize that indeed they mind controlled some uh, wannabe pilots. But one case that stands out and seems very unlikely is the Flight 77 that allegedly hit the Pentagon. And when you see the trajectory followed by this fl- by this plane, allegedly again. Uh, it's as if you ask a new driver who just got his driving license, you put him in a Formula One, you put him on Monaco track, and you tell him, and now you have to drive around Monaco as fast as Michael Schumacher. Yeah, no, you've got to beat the world record. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, the flying that was done to get that airplane supposedly. Supposedly. Supposedly to the Pentagon was sort of. That, I, I personally that, don't think it's very possible. I don't even know if a professional well, pilot could have really done it the way they claim. Me neither. There are the pilots for 9-11 Truth, uh, and they say it is impossible. Yeah. They even say that the second plane hitting the, the South Tower, which is, okay, so the second incident, you probably remember footage of it. Uh, you've got a TV camera and a helicopter overhead. The first tower, the North Tower, I think, is already aflame. It's been hit. 
and then there's this plane coming from from your camera view coming from behind. It appears to be descending, yeah. and then it's making a bend as well, and it's coming bend, back yeah. up, and it's yeah. doing that at what four or five hundred miles an hour at high speed. Pilots have said, "I'm a pilot. I fly. I flown one of those things. I could not do that. Yeah. Even even that maneuver in, that was more or less a direct hit in terms of flying it uh, straight at an object." Well, well I mean, nigh impossible what, for a human being. The second tower. Yeah. Well, I mean, why was, was that impo- why was that impossible? Because of the way it it, it <clears throat> descended from a height, yeah. made a bend, to, a correcting bend to make sure it hit the building oh. at, at high speed, and part of that bend actually saw it gain some height just before it entered the tower. It, mm. it needed to bend, not too much though, or it would lose altitude mm. rapidly right. and plow into the streets below. Right. It had to come down at high speed, bank. And come back up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to um, remember it's a, it's still even though it's you know it's well constructed it's still a heavy object that you're flying that's you know got fuel and people in it it's not something that you can just fly willy nilly. Yeah, uh, yeah. All over the place. Well, one thing is uh, for pilot, piloting a plane, it's three dimensional uh, yeah. thing. You have a lot of uh, geometric space parameters, yeah. and you have a strong correlation between the the lift yeah. and the speed. So you have to monitor all those parameters and to always find a setting that is within the acceptable range for the plane. Because if the lift is not uh, strong enough right. or if it's too high, you might have problems. However, if there's an hypothesis, if you have a, a flight plan pre-programmed, right. you can check that at every second you are within the range, the ranges. Mm-hmm. So you can be all the time at the very Therm, uh, thermodynamic, Limit. um, aerodynamic, sorry, limits mm-hmm. of the plane and do things that are seemingly impossible. And if you tap on YouTube, uh, remote control RC plane oh, yeah. w- with screens, you can see people from their van, they have this uh, set of screens and from the screen with a GPS and a camera mounted on their RC plane, they conduct a whole mission. They take off, they do their mission, they come back, and we're talking about affordable, cheap for uh, citizen technology here. It's not uh, groundbreaking technology. So, what do the military have right. for remote control? It's probably magnitudes above that. So, here's the thing that flies in people's faces: they do this whole thing. Now, generally, when you talk to people about non-911 issues about airplanes, they'll say something along the lines of, "Well, those planes practically fly themselves." The pilot is kind of just there to make sure nothing goes wrong and push a couple of buttons when it's necessary, but they're practically on pre- People accept that. Every person knows and accepts that if you talk to them about non-9-11 issues. The minute you get into 9-11, you suggest that people go like, oh, no, 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 no. But right after 9-11, what is the thing that comes out? It turns out that Israel now build, builds remote-controlled airplanes, these drones that they call them, that can be flown halfway by someone halfway across the world with a screen and a joystick. I mean, it, like it flies in your face. It's like they're saying, look, we have this technology. We can make these super cool flying machines that can be remote controlled. And then you have this whole story of the people with the van celebrating. You know, I mean, it just it smells. It reeks to high heaven. Of course, that's what they did. And about, no, they didn't get 19 hijackers. They just remote controlled the plane. About remote controlling, this is the standard procedure in some ways because for decades now pilots don't 
manage the path of their plane to the information they get to the windscreen. Right. They use the ILS measurements, right. parameters, so they basically read parameters on various um, equipments, and you can have those parameters displayed while you're in the cockpit, but you can have exactly the same parameters when you have when you are thousands of miles from the cockpit. It's exactly the same. You have exactly the same amount of information. Exactly. So, I mean, like the whole idea of 19 hijackers, to me, it's just there's an easier solution. You know, I mean, you could even go so far as to say, well, this Osama bin Laden, with his big money, he hired some hackers to hack together some remote control thing. I mean, it would have been easier for them to do that than to do this whole 19 suicide. I mean, it's just like, it's just unpracticable the way they did it. It would probably be easier for them to have a guy sneak in working in the baggage area, sneak in and attach some remote control device and wire it up in five minutes and for them to take over it that way. It's even easier than that because uh, remote control uh, craft is built into all commercial jets. I mean, the pilot goes into cruise, the computer takes over, the onboard computer... It's, you don't even have to actually make sure it's fitted properly beforehand. Mm. It can be done to a regular uh, jet that has flown it's right. flown the day before. It's flown exactly the same route as at least two of them had. Right. Uh, they were the same craft used. Um, I mean, there's just a, the, it's Occam's razor. Yeah, it, it is Occam's razor. And when you apply it, the official conspiracy theory just is far too complex. I mean, how are they explaining that you've got religious fundamentalists who are doing this, you know, because they are seriously, seriously uh, obsessed with uh, a fundamentalist version of Islam. The The only real paper trail we have for these guys is that they were spending a lot of money on strippers and booze and cocaine and partying in Las Vegas in the weeks running up to the event. What would a good Muslim do when, when in America? I mean, it's, just, it's ridiculous. You mentioned the official conspiracy theory, and that's something that has always fascinated me, that there's such a reluctance from the medias to acknowledge a very important part of politics, i.e. conspiracies. But when it's about 9-11, there's a kind of sudden change in mentality. And all medias somehow acknowledge that Osama bin Laden orchestrated a conspiracy, and from a remote cave lost in, a, in, a, in the mountains of Afghanistan, planned all the minor details of a very complex, elaborate operation that doesn't fit uh, or benefit him anyway, because the end result was allegedly that he was killed and uh, war in Afghanistan and a lot of uh, destruction. However, at the same time, you have those intelligence organizations that have the means to organize conspiracy, that have been doing that, and it's documented for decades and decades. They have the technology, they have the human resources, they have the money, and they did benefit directly from this operation. And while the most obvious is right, right there into our face, you still have the medias and officials, politicians, who claim that it's Ben Laden from his cave who did uh, the all 9-11 thing. Well, it's ridiculous. Bin Laden was the ultimate one-hit wonder. He was able to organize this one attack, but he seems absolutely incapable before and after to do anything else of significance. But here's, uh, on the topic of conspiracy, here's what Richard Dolan says. This is from the 
book 9-11, The Ultimate Truth by uh, Laura Nightyachik and Joe Quinn. You should get it on Amazon. He says, the very label conspiracy serves as an automatic dismissal, as though no one ever acts in secret. Let us bring some perspective and common sense to this issue. The United States comprises large organizations, corporations, bureaucracies, interest groups, and the like, which are conspiratorial by nature. That is, they are hierarchical. Their important decisions are made in secret by few key decision makers. They are not above lying about their activities, such as the nature of organizational behavior. Conspiracy, in this key sense, is a way of life around the globe. And it's kind of right. I mean, like nobody does things in secret. You have conspiracies all the time. Hey, Bill doesn't want to see such and such a movie. We've got to change his mind. Or, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, conspiracy is just a normal human mode of doing things, not always to murder people, but evil people obviously have those types of conspiracies. Well, um, Hank Alvarelli, who we had on a few weeks ago, in his book about um, Frank Olson, uh, he goes back a bit to, well, I think it's, it's later on, the, the CIA has released a number of papers and supposedly about this affair and about mind control programs and whatnot. And among them was a memo from the CIA uh, discussing the term conspiracy theory, which was dated to around 1969, shortly after the um, the investigator in New Orleans. What was his name? He's in the JFK movie, uh, played by Kevin Costner. He'd opened an investigation and he was uh, prosecuting people for right. involvement in a conspiracy to murder JFK. Mm-hmm. And they had actually had a discussion and came to a decision that they would use this term conspiracy theory to, right. to portray any of this kind of thinking or criticism. Right. Jim Garrison. The official Jim, Jim Garrison, that's yeah, it. That's it. So it, it is yeah, born in people thinking about and trying to piece together what happened with right. JFK. Well, there's no point in trying to analyze conspiracy theory or, or you know take the media to task over then you know dismissing conspiracy theorists or ridiculing conspiracy theory <clears throat> when it's obvious that conspiracy th- conspiracy happen all the time and people conspire all the time because that's not the context or not, that's not the way they're using it and that's not what it means anymore. Right. When the media calls uh, you a conspiracy theorist, uh, if you agree that you are, there's, a, there's a, an agreement there of understanding of what that term means, and it means that I don't agree, or I don't believe my government. I, I believe that my government, generally speaking, and my politicians are a bunch of corrupt, corrupt liars. Uh, that's what it means. Yeah. That's what they. That that's just a euphemism for, I don't believe that my government tells the truth ever. I think it lies all the time. So that's what they may as well say to you. So you're one of those people who uh, doesn't believe the government ever tells the truth, always lies, and is involved in all sorts of corruption. Uh-huh. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> if they were being honest, that's what they would say. Yeah. Uh, of course, they would admit that conspiracies exist and you know people conspire all the time, etc. But they will not admit or will not agree, certainly, most people as well, I think, won't agree that the government is populated by a bunch of corrupt liars who are out to deceive people as often and well, as regularly as possible. Well, the sub page has like a, a little video of this guy taking John McCain to task about that kind of stuff. So I think that more and more people, and there was, there was quite a bit of clapping 
uh, going on in that situation. So there's quite a bit of people to actually do. Yeah, in recent years. Yeah. In recent years, have started to basically, you know, because you know, when I was growing up, I always thought it was a little bit strange because we all, when, when I was always talking with my friends or anybody I knew, it was always, you know, politicians are a bunch of liars. And then suddenly they became not liars when there's an emer- when they're in a, when, when there's an emergency and you have a really vested emotional interest in what they're saying, like your safety depends on it. They're not lying. But, you know, I mean, it's... A conspiracy theorist also today means a historical revisionist. Yeah. That you essentially believe that most of the major events of history are have been fabricated or falsified or did not happen the way they happened. Um, so the problem is, for most people, while they admit that government you know, officials and politicians, etc., are corrupt and liars, etc., they may not ascribe, or sorry, prescribe to the idea that major events of history are lies like for example you know deep conspiracy or deep deep falsifications in the sense of you know <clears throat> the government would kill its own people or the government you know essentially historical events where the narrative has already been established and you're going back and saying that narrative is completely false uh it wasn't in a lot of cases it wasn't this enemy that attacked us it was our government that attacked us you know um it's a big lie that people don't don't really want to, you know, they don't want to go there in terms of the big lie, or they can't because, understandably, it tends to uh, turn your world a bit upside down, you know? Uh, well, I mean... I mean, an example is the whole Jesus Caesar thing that we've been talking about recently, you know? Right. I mean, it's very difficult for people once it's... I mean, they've been they've been brought up on it, you know? It's a part of their official reality. So it's not just a belief or some little point that uh, that people aren't really... Uh, attached to or are are somewhat in, largely indifferent to it's it's very often it's a it's a major part of people's identity of who they are and their history and where they came from and what makes them who they are and you're asking them to mm-hmm. to, to turn that upside down and that's why a lot of people are it's even it's even worse though in the modern day because not only is it that it sort of attacks who they identify themselves as, as the good guy the good Americans. But as you see with what's going on with Syria, this whole like, oh, my God, Assad's killing children. We have to do something about it, right? But the problem is if they, for a second, the way they feel morally about the the world that they live in, if they were to accept that the government of America does that, then they would have to do something. And they're terrified of ever having to do something about the current state of affairs. So Mm -hmm. that's an added dimension to it that prevents them from believing it because – if, I mean, like, if you can, if there's a child being killed in the next room and you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs, you you can't escape being judged morally as an evil person. But if you say, oh, there's no child there, they're just having fun. No, 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 that's not happening. That's not. And then later on, you say, well, I didn't know it was happening. I didn't know it was happening. You escape, try to escape the moral judgment because you know you're afraid or whatever. And here we're touching one of the fundamental aspects of 9/11. I think that is the psychological operation. 9-11 radically transformed the psyche of Americans and uh, people in general. It was uh, it led to a literal hysterization of the masses mm-hmm. who became so blinded by emotions, mm-hmm. in particular fear, mm-hmm. that they became ripe to accept the unacceptable right. and to close their eyes in front of uh, things that were so contrary to their most basic interest. 
Well, Martha Stout talks about that in the paranoia switch with what she calls limbic warfare. And she says that there, there are basically six stages of it. The first stage being, you know, sort of, sort of group or national trauma. Uh, usually a human-caused one. It can't be like, you know, just a hurricane or something like that. It has to be kind of like a, an enemy strikes you, uh, something like that. You know, some group of people gets killed or bombed or something like that. And the second stage is a fear broker uh, comes up. And this person is, a, is someone who has private interests that are not necessarily connected with the event. But in order to pursue them, they capitalize on it by, you know, causing fear and stirring up panic. And she uses the example of McCarthy. You know, he had sort of private interests involved in what he was doing. And he used the whole Red Scare and you know, un-American activities as a, as a platform for that. And the third, third stage is scapegoatism, which is the fear broker then takes and chooses some sort of group of individuals or some organization or some country and holds them up as the scapegoat for it. In the case of McCarthy, she uses, he used homosexuals and, and the Reds. You know, they were the, the, the group of individuals that we needed to target. And then the third stage, what? the fourth stage, sorry. I got lost there. The fourth stage is uh, cultural regression. People become very angry at this object, and they want to have revenge. They want a, a, a vendetta against them, and that's kind of what happened in 9/11 with with Afghanistan and Iraq. And you know, we killed so many Muslims. times. What? And Muslims in general. And Muslims in general. Muslims, of course, were the scapegoat chosen, and then we went and we killed hundreds of thousands, millions of them over the last you know 12 years. Uh, and and only, they apparently only managed to kill 3,000. So we have, you know, many times over taken our revenge. So in the fifth stage is the recognition and backlash, which is suddenly people realize that they've gone too far, that they've been, they've been hoodwinked into doing something that they know is immoral from their passions. And then you start seeing small little protests here and there, and the people get bolder and bolder. And usually they come at the various individuals from like a, a tangential problem that they have. You know, for instance, with McCarthy, it was the fact that he was drinking. He was a drunkard. So they couldn't attack him on his whole anti-communism thing. They instead attacked him on his morality. He was a, a drunkard. Then later they made accusations of homosexuality. And finally, there's the stage of regret and forgetting. Once people realize how bad things actually got and how far they had gone, they have trouble understanding how they were made to go that far, and it's so painful, and there's so much guilt, and they have so much to pay for. They have so much to, to expunge that they find that they can't really find a real way for them to do it, and so they start forgetting. They suppress it and repress it, and that allows the situation to start all over again. Yeah, and... Uh... History is therefore repeating, and you can see the pattern of 9-11 having occurred previously in the U.S. history, as you mentioned. And there are other examples. In, during World War I, you have uh, this <clears throat> almost spontaneous uh, mob movements, people movements against German people. And Japanese. Lynching. It, it will be in, during World War II. Oh, yes. Yeah, uh, I wanted to mention. World War I, you have the Germans. Macartism, you have the communists, uh, the Reds. Uh, during the World War II, you have the uh, Japanese with a relocation of more than 100,000 U.S. citizens having Japanese ascent in, uh, in California. So problem is that this step six mm. enables the elites mm. to conduct the same trauma, hysterization, uh, manipulation through fear, Again and again and again, a few decades apart. 
Yeah, until people until people learn to expunge their guilt and really mourn the things that they've done and and really make an apology because you know in a certain sense the the United States has never really apologized for any bad thing that it's ever done you know and the human and and the American people never really they don't they don't think about what what we did to um, to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the fact that even after they had surrendered we still sent a thousand planes to carpet bomb them. Uh, at the same time, dropping flyers saying that, oh, by the way, you've surrendered, and here's our last hurrah. We're going to firebomb, you know, the entire area, you know. And so there's all these different types of acts and things that we've participated in, things that we've been complicit in that we don't own and acknowledge. And that is the door through which these people kind of act. It's that that suppression, that ignoring the reality, is is a window for us to ignore some other reality with with, with these sort of fear brokers that keep popping up every once in a while. And what is really sad is during those historization events, World War One, McCarthyism, World War Two, nine eleven, the real culprit, which is always the same, the elites that manipulate, that conspire, that create fears from nowhere. And that takes advantage of the, this esterization is never <clears throat> identified. And in a sense, ultimately, the real fight is within each of each of us. Right. It's a fight between blind fear, hate, accepting the unacceptable, being willing to sacrifice the most important things, i.e., the freedom of our neighbors, of the others, of ourselves, preserving life versus this uh, fear state where you follow blindly and accept the, the worst things, where, where you end up... Uh, I, had some, uh, I read some surveys about the uh, percentage of Americans who agreed with uh, torture, with this law allowing torture, mm. with this uh, uh, interventions in Iraq that led to hundreds of thousands of dead civilians. Mm. And that might be the most frightening part of all this uh, conspiracy is what it led, where it led people to this uh, terrible moral state right. where you accept the worst things ever human can commit. Right. And even worse, sometimes you even encourage and support it. Well, you know, I mean, you have to, at a certain point, begin to realize that, you know, there are people who are just a little bit not right in, I guess you could say the head, but maybe even in their soul. Because to enjoy another person's suffering is, is sadism. You know what I mean? And if you want cruel things to happen to another person and that gives you enjoyment, then you are kind of by definition of human custom an evil person. And there is no situation that it says that it's okay to enjoy someone's suffering. And and that's never an okay thing. So those people, you really have to wonder about what it is in their makeup because there's no situation in which you could say, I am receiving pleasurable sensations from seeing someone suffer. That's, that's quite disturbing. Yeah. If you take as a definition of the soul, the conscience, um, the capacity we have to feel suffering, to suffer when someone else is suffering, then the fact that a vast proportion of human beings have been pushed to accept 
or in some cases to support mm -hmm. torture right. and massive killing of civilians, it means we have been cornered in a trap right. where we are we're forced or induced to negate, to deny the most noble part of ourselves, i.e. our humanity, our soul, our conscience, our empathy. Well, I mean, throughout history, torture has come up and, and gone down as like this sort of idea, and this whole idea of revenge and punishment. And a lot of the people who argue for like capital punishment say, well, it d deters crime. I said, well, look how many people are on death row. Obviously, it doesn't work. And so a person who believes in, in torture uh, or punishing people uh, as some sort of deterrent is, is completely deluding themselves. It has is, is never worked as a deterrent. In fact, all it does is, as Martin Luther King said, just makes more enemies and causes more suffering. Suffering only multiplies suffering. All you do is add to it. You don't solve anything. You don't correct anything. I've been trying to think about um, the goal of somebody doing this. We, we've obviously seen the results. Now, is suffering a goal? Is, is it to make money? Is it to start the war that happened? Because the, the, neo, the neoconservatives who were pushing the Iraq War, the invasion of Afghanistan, and <clears throat> Libya, Syria today, and Iran had already named those targets. They'd all, they're already on the record in public as saying, this is what we would like to do, to make America the number one superpower, make sure nobody else takes shots. Mm -hmm. And here's a shopping list of all the things we want. <laughs> I think, but, the, of course, there's also that infamous comment. Well, it's just, it's in the the PNAC document, the Project for New American Century, where they state in a report, September 2000, one year before, they basically list: here's what we want to do. We need to massively increase military spending. We need to tr transform the entire Pentagon system into a, a, a leaner, meaner war machine. But it won't happen absent some catastrophic event like a new Pearl Harbor. One year later, that happens. Mm -hmm. Is it, I mean, are they the people we need to look to? The people that we can actually name? They're, I mean, they're fairly public figures. The, to answer your first question, I don't have the definite answer, but I think the factors you listed are not mutually exclusive and actually they fit quite well with the psyche the psychopathic psyche, more power, more wealth, suffering of the others, more control. All those factors are part of the fundamental motivations of psychopathic minds. And wars conveniently serve all those purposes. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of ideal activities for psychopaths. Mm. Yeah, it's it's hard to forget some of the statements from, um, I think, of, uh, what was his name? Was he prime minister then? I think he's the current prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, when he, when he first heard, uh, well, supposedly when he first heard about what had happened. Oh, this is very good. This is very good for Israel. Mm, yeah. Oh, but wait, I'm sorry, I'll backtrack and he clarifies his comment, but he could not, you know, hide his glee of what had happened. And uh, also, when I think about the motives of 9-11 and uh, the orchestrator, 
sometimes the feeling is a bit like a Russian dolls, you know? Yeah. So they exactly. every each higher level the perpetrators had more information and instrumentalized the level below. Uh at the industrial com military industrial complex you have a a clear motivation of mm. selling more weapons, making more profits. So let's go for a war with a false flag operation. At an intelligence level, you might have some extra motivation. Yes, there is money, but it means also more power, more control over the population, a more central role. At some uh, other level, at uh, Israeli intelligence, for example, they are also to add to those factors. It's not mutually exclusive, but you also have the a strong geopolitical, geopolitical factor and uh, increased control over near neighboring Muslim countries, Middle East in general. And uh, on maybe a high, even higher level, there is this struggle I mentioned previously for, I don't know how to depict it, for the souls of human beings and inducing them to deny the, the small, noble, noble exactly. part of them. So you have this kind of pyramid mm. of um, agents, <laughs> manipulators, Operators, and the higher you go, the more, yeah. the darker the motive, and the broader the picture, and the scope of uh, uh, reasons for conducting this dark operation. Yeah, the whole 9-11 thing has that air of um, probably maybe started as like a simple plan. You know, somebody with these this project for a new American century said, oh, we need a false flag operation. They started planning it. And somebody at a higher level said, hmm, that's interesting. And then someone at a higher level said, hmm, that's really interesting. And someone at a very, very high level, and we're talking about blurring the borders between, you know, sort of like the shadow government and even something maybe a little bit higher. Um, they probably said, hmm, this is going to serve our long-term goals and uh, in, in line with, you know, sort of like the corrupting of humanity. Because uh, it's kind of like that fight between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi. And a lot of people sort of wonder about it and talk about it in the, in the Star Wars community, where Emperor Palpatine is saying, you know, give in to your anger, strike me down, and then you will, you know, be converted to the dark side. And this whole idea of giving in to your rage and punishing somebody and wanting to hurt somebody kind of converts you to the dark side. And in a certain sense, you know, there's there's a level of people who, who kind of know that the most important thing is to put people into positions where they're given a choice between self-sacrifice, accepting a slight, accepting a, a pain or a, to suffer consciously, or to redirect it at someone else, to pass the, the emotional and the suffering, the pain buck to somebody else. And doing that, you know, causing innocent people to suffer to avoid suffering yourself is kind of an evil act. And they want to encourage situations where people get sucked into that kind of Emperor Palpatine, give in to your hate, strike me down, only then will you be converted to the dark side. And then there's like a certain element, it seems, at a very high level of that, of wanting to convert humanity into a giant bunch of vengeful, sadistic people who sort of laugh and at the at the death and suffering of other people, like this Hillary Clinton when she watched the video of Gaddafi, and she's sort of giggling with glee, and people looking at that as an acceptable response to seeing someone being horribly treated. I think he was he was raped and shot and and mistreated in all manner of ways. And I mean, a person sitting there laughing and giggling with glee with that is truly sick and evil, you know? Yeah, and one of the issues of uh, Judy's Wood book. And that it shows that the technology used was uh, 
at best uh, at the upper limit of human technology, uh, which, by the way, allows us to dismiss the official theory, Ben Laden uh, orchestrating everything from its cave, from his cave. Um, It shows as well that uh, some uh, quite high uh, offices and individuals were involved in this operation. That's the only way to account for the literal justification of the water centers. Yeah, I think originally, I think at the low levels, they just planned to fly some planes. In. And I think at the high level, people said, well, watch this. Yeah, you know? exactly. You can have this uh, secret office at the very top that has justification uh, to a uh, weapon that manipulates, maybe, say, the Mossad to conduct a geopolitical uh, a coup yeah. to to further their dominating position in Middle East, and the Mossad that infiltrate maybe the Pentagon or the CIA that conducts the most the more basic and operational part of the of the operation, and you have this uh, pyramid of control with uh, actually everybody is screwing everybody at the top is screwing the people at the lower level. Yeah, I think yeah, there's, I think there's a lot to this. On the one hand. Um, part of the problem people won't go there is that they go, well, wait a minute, you're talking about thousands of people being in on this. No, oh, no. I can't, I no, can't. No. And that, that yeah, that's a completely understandable point of view because in a conspiracy like this, in what we saw happen that day, there were so many things that it seems in retrospect went completely pear-shaped. I mean, for example, a fire broke out in the White House itself. And it, it was reported, and then it was put out, and it just disappeared. People have forgotten all about it. And it's hard not to wonder, well, wait a minute, was a, f- a fire started there. Well, perhaps the White House was a target, or an original target. You know, it, it, it's not like the event was carried off smoothly. There were lots of different things happening that somebody who was uh, maybe handling one aspect of it had no idea something else was going to happen over here in this city. Mm. Um, the idea that thousands of people had to be involved in it is because people have an analog conception of a conspiracy. They imagine that people have to walk from one building to another to give an order. They can't. They don't. They, they don't. They don't. They think that oh, you had to organize these mighty. No, you just had to have what it was. It was four planes. You had to have four people to install some remote device, if that was even necessary. Maybe they just hacked the computer, and then it's even fewer people to fly the planes in. So you have to have probably four people behind a desk somewhere with a joystick doing that, a couple of one or two commanders at the best to call up some other commander on the phone and say, oh, you're, we're doing this, it's a routine thing or something like that, or don't scramble any jets. And Well, the, the way they covered that was they had um, <laughs> war game exercises going on that day where most of the eastern seaboard's fleet of jets we're way over the other side of the country. And you only need one person to sign that order. Yeah. That's all. You know, I mean, so so few people were needed, actually, to pull this off. that it's actually amazing because we live in a digital era where, you know, you can have a couple of people in a room in Langley or some other place in NORAD, you know, jockeying the joysticks for flying the planes in, one or two commanders sending orders to the military, signing off on it, and, you know, sort of one 
super evil scientist guy with a dustification weapon to push a button. You know, I mean, seriously, it's, it, this conspiracy does not require thousands of no. people. There's another, I mean, among the many weird things that happened that day, the one I, I saw recently, again, was the the infamous BBC reporter. Um, she's sort of on the scene, and the, the, the anchor back in the studio in London says, okay, we're going to go now to Jane so-and-so. Uh, we, we just heard that World Trade Center 7 has collapsed. And so they go to her, and she's, she's sort of reading off her notes. Yeah, yeah, you know, this 47-story tall building has just collapsed. We've been told it fell at 5 p.m., blah, blah, blah. In the background over yeah. her shoulder is the skyline of the World Trade Center, yeah. and you see World Trade Center 7 is still standing there. <laughs> and they, they just carry on talking because they, they don't know that the building yeah. they're talking about is still behind them. I mean, it's like those things getting set up, you know, and I, I I wonder at some points because, you know, it, it, it does sometimes remind you of that, that NASA error where they were flying, I think they were flying some sort of um, rocket to Mars and they forgot to convert, they said that they forgot to convert miles, kilometers. like miles and kilometers or something, they crashed exactly. it into the planet. Yeah. And and you do wonder sometimes if that is like that, or if maybe they're just taking the piss with people. Like that there is some sort of malevolent jokester in charge of these things who makes that choice because he just wants to mess with people's minds. Because can they be that incompetent? I mean, to not get the time scales right or, you know, I mean, really. It's kind, of, it's kind of incredible that they could be that incompetent. They've made this whole big plan, and yet they forget a little detail, like the building hasn't fallen yet, and it's in the picture in the background. Yeah. And I think they, they do it. They, they, they succeeded largely on, on the fear, on the success of the terror. Because if you think about what happened later, all the different reports that came out, the official 9-11 report doesn't even deal with World Trade Center 7, right. which collapsed in its own footprint. As far as the official U.S. government investigation is concerned, only two towers fell that day. So they obviously thought, well, you know, we don't need to even talk. We'll just ignore it. I think that's part of the recipe. And those mistakes don't really matter because I think they have a accurate knowledge of the human psyche. Exactly. And they know in those situations, emotions are so strong right. that the rational mind is almost not working anymore. So you can have Water Center 7 in the background, it doesn't matter, the switch has already occurred, and humans are ripe for any kind of manipulation, they are blinded. I think it's more about training people to not use their reason and to to learn to ignore inconsistencies. Yeah, that, that's an important thing that, that people were, were, were ready, where they were ripe for this kind of thing. Um, there have been some notorious ideas down through the years. In the 1960s, there was Operation Northwoods, hmm. part of which was it was a very similar plot in which uh, commercial aircraft would be hijacked and flown into U.S. targets, into U.S. cities. And it was, it was shot down, hmm. so to speak, um, rather quickly. It's not just, so, it's not just, in a, in a way, it's not just that the technology wasn't there yet to, to pull off a 9-11. It's that the psychological state of 
in particular the U.S., have to be they have to sort of time that right. How you know how they do that? I think it, it's probably more instinctive thing than anything else. But um, it comes back to I think them having a very good idea of of at least outwardly how people behave and how they will respond to some stimulus. Yeah, when you think about the the event, you see that it resonates with a lot of primal fundamental fears that are imprinted in human beings, the fear of hate, the fear of fire, the fear of plane, elevators, of uh, uh, all the things that are in us unconsciously, that when it's unconscious, it's all the more, all the stronger. And they manage to, and the symbolism as well, or Trade Center, New York, in the heart of the city, a very symbolic city. You know, you have all those uh, factors related to the unconscious mind that were packed together in one single event in order to maximize its emotional impact. Yeah. It was a well-chosen target. I mean, it was more well-chosen than if it had been like the Statue of Liberty or something. You know, I mean, it was really... And of course, the Pentagon. I mean, there's the symbol of the military-industrial complex, the center of the military power of empire. And of course, it, it must be hit. Mm, I That's think a classic that was sort a, of self-inflicted wound. You know, yeah. the last place people will look. Yeah, I think that suspects. was a self-inflicted wound. That was a, don't look at us, we wouldn't shoot ourselves. <laughs> yeah, one solution is a self-inflicted wound because it was a, a part of the Pentagon that was under renovation and there was no employee at the time and finally the damage were... Well, there are, yeah, there, there were. I mean, of, there were a lot of employees there at the time. Uh, and not a lot of people died, right? And the Pentagon, no, but it was strategic. It was hit for a very specific reason. Was yeah, it the O and I? Yeah. The the alleged flight path came from the opposite end, or came towards the opposite end of the building. If it had just kept on going, it would have plowed straight into Rumsfeld and all the top brass. But no, it's supposed to have made this turn around. And hit a part that had just been renovated, yeah, with the O and I in it. Which is the O and I, but I mean, people should know that there's a little bit of a history <clears throat> between the O and I, exactly. the CIA, and other intelligence agencies. That there, I mean, this goes back all the way to before World War One. No, the other more important thing in that in that area of the Pentagon that was hit was the uh, there was a financial task force that was involved in figuring out where the 3.2 trillion dollars that Rumsfeld couldn't account for. 2.3. Two point three, yeah, uh, that he couldn't account for the day before, when, uh, the day before nine eleven, when he stated that the Pentagon couldn't account for two point three trillion dollars mm. in expenses, and there was uh, yeah a group in that specific area that was hit the day after that had been involved, because obviously by the time Rumsfeld announced this, it was it had already been known internally to the Pentagon for a considerable amount of time before that, right. and um, so there was a uh, basically an audit going on and there were it was an office there were a lot of people mm. actually working on that and I think all of them died in in, the, in that attack including, and all of the office was destroyed so so we could have make of that kind of a, a, a bit of a, a convenient it, it was a good time to bury bad news to quote uh, a, a British <laughs> um, staffer of uh, I, I think it was a government minister at the time of the 7-7 attacks in London, she she got raked over the coals for it. But you, you, she, she gave away the mindset, you know, 
Oh, excellent. Okay, right. If we say this now, everyone will forget about it. No problem. Yeah. So yeah, the missing 2.3 trillion. Well, we with some idea where it might have gone. It might have gone into planning 9/11. Um, no. Or who knows what other? Black I think it ops. went into their. I think it pockets. went into their private pockets. I think that the. I think that they were doing what what everyone's been doing since the Roman times, uh, which you know, I mean, of course, there's plenty of evidence during the entire, the whole Cicero Caesar thing that there was just a constant stream of, of uh, indictments for basically just and, and Cicero himself, uh, basically when his his brother was elected what was it propate not propraetors um whatever he he was given charge of his his brother's finances and he basically just embezzled like all the money that uh, that he wanted from the the roman treasury you know i mean that's what they do they embezzle and eventually it does get figured out because of course they're greedy and they want more and more money and you know he's probably funneling it off to black projects and some off to some private estates here and there and some to his cronies and friends and this that and the other thing and Eventually, he just you know didn't realize that he had embezzled so much, and somebody caught on. And you know, going back to the Pentagon, so what you say is, is interesting. It shows that maybe it was uh, at the same time a self-inflicting wound in order to uh, show that the Pentagon was not involved, if any suspicion would be later raised. And at the same time, it was a kind of. Uh, more than a warning, it was a direct message delivered to uh, uh, ONI uh, and uh, and this audit team, because what you were alluding before, maybe it didn't develop so much. Apparently, CIA ONI have not shared the same vision concerning intelligence no. and geopolitics, and ONI might not have been a, a strong supporters of this operation. And ONI, of course, is a much older organization. And even the CIA and most of the, it's a very old intelligence organization, and it probably comes back from from like the days of the East India Trading Company, you know, type of people, you know, back in the days when they were sailing in, in wooden ships. And these people are have a very old world intelligence guys, gentlemen intelligence officers, uh, this type, and so they've always had a, a battle, uh, I think, with with the new breed, uh, the CIA and NSA types. Yeah, it, it shows uh, actually that. Uh, we should not have a, a monolithic vision of this organization. This organization are constituted of several factions uh, that are sometimes collinear, that are sometimes opposing each other. Mm-hmm. And the way I see it is a bit like a, a pack of wolf. Yeah. The level of polarization is high. Uh, but like wolf, they can cooperate if they see that the collective action brings more than benefit and cost. However, at any time, they can betray each other, yeah, and sure. they can eat each other. But they have a lot more in common with each other than than than, than not. Uh, yeah. um, so, for example, um, well, well, yeah, the the in the 1960s and even before the 1950s, with uh, mind control experiments, mm-hmm. drugs, and so on, they were all basically doing their own thing. And sometimes there's some crossover. Okay, I'll. Um, if we fund you, then you can put your name to this project and so on and so forth. But they all, they basically had duplicate and triplicate of the same kinds right. of things going on, each within a different organization. And you can see how it's sort of set up like that, where there's a kind of internal competition. Mm. And then something in the middle or, or above, off to the side, can take the best results, <coughs> as far as they're concerned, the best results from any one of these. Uh, projects that are going on in parallel. Yeah, 
So yeah. it's a kind of it's it's it is set up that way. Well, I mean, yeah, it to looks compete. it looks to me most of the time as if the government is actually kind of filled a bit with uh, with private interest and factionalism and but there is it does seem that there is some sort of shadowy controlling aspect that kind of has their fingers in everybody's pie is kind of connected with everybody and is you know sort of like grooming different people into their organization and looking at who's doing what and taking the best result as you were saying from each different organization so there does seem to be that there's a little bit of a brain and a whole a whole lot of hands in the government you know yeah <clears throat> and sometimes when you you look at the level of organization displayed by some of those some of those operations you left to wonder if it's only the creation of psychopath now, some operations show uh, a very accurate and long-term planning and maybe psychopaths are very useful operators mm, yeah. at the operational level but at a higher level you have people who have a keen intelligence and a very dark motives yeah. and who can plan ahead have a sound strategic uh, reasoning High level of intelligence, but for for the worst, for the darkest motives. Yeah, I mean, there has to be kind of like an evil Gandhi and an evil, you know, an evil yeah, balance. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an evil JFK, you know, somewhere in the government. There's a person who was as charismatic and forward thinking as JFK, who just happens to be of the evil variety. And the same thing with like a Gandhi. Is is there sort of like somebody for the evil people? And, and I think that there certainly is, and, and they're not psychopathic, and they're not short-sighted at all. They're very lo- they're in it for the evil. They think that evil is the correct way to do things. And mm. you know, it's we a should... conscious choice. Unlike psychopaths, who are not equipped for with a yeah. with a conscious uh, uh, organs, those people might might make a, a conscious choice to serve the the dark side of the of the force. And we should yeah, we should sort of like qualify evil as being self self-interest, self-service, you know, the choosing to, to serve your own interests instead of, you know, the collective interest of the people, you know, I mean, that's kind of what evil, what we mean by evil. We don't mean like some sort of dark Satanist, you know, and like something out of Rosemary's Baby or something. We're, we're talking about like real self-interest. Let's, let's take this back now, try and, at least in the broad strokes, try and see what happened that day. So... Obviously, the, we've got the two towers that are hit in New York. We've got something exploding at the Pentagon. The official story is that the towers came down because the plane caused so much damage and it weakened the structure. They collapsed. The problem is that has never happened before and that has never happened since. An office fire does not take down a skyscraper, especially one that's designed to withstand impacts from jet airliners. So you're still left with the so-called collapse. Um, we, we had Judy Wood on a few months ago, and she has some very interesting evidence collected that clearly points to something unusual <coughs> happening to those towers to bring them down the way they did. Yeah. There are several anomalies. Uh, you mentioned the alleged uh, structural weakness within the steel beams because of the heat generated by the burning kerosene and that doesn't work. Uh, the steel doesn't melt at this temperature, it doesn't lose enough mechanical resistance at the kerosene burning temperature. 
So you have this first point that uh, you, you emphasized. And there is a second point as well. Even if it was true, let's imagine, okay, the steel uh, suddenly transformed into chewing gum and collapsed and towers went down. But the problems, when you look down, the towers are not there. When you evaluate the quantity, the quantity of rubbles, it doesn't account for the 500 I don't remember the quantity, 500,000 uh, 500, tons maybe or whatever. <laughs> anyway, the volume of rubbles is about 20% uh, of what should be found. So right. most of the towers yeah. transformed into dust and to transform the, the, the cohesion forces of concrete, of steel, is very high. And when you try to break a piece of concrete with a hammer, you realize the quantity of energy you have to provide to transform this chunk of concrete into powder. Well, in this case, the all World Trade Center, those millions of tons were transformed into dust. So we're talking here about a device, let's call it a weapon, that was that has the capability to deliver huge quantities of, let's call it energy, we don't really know what it is, huge quantity of energy or information in a almost uh, in a Fraction of a second. Well, I, there, there's there's the two pieces of of just visual. The, well, there's the one piece of visual evidence that that calls everything into question, kind of puts a stop to any kind of theory that you have, and that was the dustification situation. When you when you see them falling and you see the amount of dust coming off and you see that, you know, it's just this really it's, you have a really hard time with coming up with a situation where a giant block of concrete, as it's falling through the air would produce that much dust. It is a bit problematic. It's something, it's an experiment that you can't recreate. So it's just a piece of visual evidence that everyone's seen, that everyone just stop and think, wait a minute, you know, take a piece of concrete, throw it in the air, how much dust comes off? Mm -hmm. None. Okay, mm -hmm. so we have a little bit of a problem here. How did they get dustified? And the second thing is that the seismic events that were measured at the time, not enough building hit the ground. Yeah. That's a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um even before that, the actual planes hitting the buildings is bracketed by strange events on both sides before and after. Yeah. What few people are aware of is explosions going off, reported to have gone off, inside the towers, in the basement of the towers, I believe, right. before any of the planes actually impacted. But I think that that's, that's a red herring. That's to, that's to get people to think that there was explosions wrapped around all the columns and that that could somehow do it and that's... First of all, it's not reasonable that the, the explosions would do that. Yeah, I, I did think that, but it turns out that um, fire brigades had been sent to the World Trade Center before uh, the, any of the planes had impacted, no. responding to a call of explosions going off. Right. Um, have I got that right, Joe? Um, and that it was the, the, the complex was actually cordoned off. Well, it seems it seems to be that way because. Well, first of all, I mean, first of all, there's a problem with the planes, um, the, the the idea that they were actually commercial airliners, because uh, most, there's a lot of eyewitness, very few, if any, eyewitness reports identified um, the planes that hit the uh, World Trade Center. Most people saw the second one, obviously, because... They weren't expecting the first one, but a lot of people saw a lot of video cameras and stuff, saw the second one uh, hitting. And um, 
the two planes that hit are either American Airlines or United Airlines. Both of them have fairly distinctive markings. Particularly, uh, American Airlines has like a, has a, a half of the fuselage of the plane is silver, and it's also got blue and red stripes stripes on it. So that would be fairly <coughs> uh, recognisable, at, le- uh, at least, or if only in the context of it. Uh, compared to, for example, a, a matte grey or a matte black plane, you would be able to recognise the difference. Now, most eyewitness reports uh, are people who, who saw the second plane hitting and also evidence or video evidence of the first plane hitting don't seem to uh, point to them really being uh, recognisable commercial airlines, either United, Airli- United Airlines or American Airlines planes. Uh, there's also some anomalous kind of shapes or configurations to the actual planes as as they fly into the the World Trade Center towers. So for me, anyway, the question as to whether or not they were actually the, the planes that hit the World Trade Center one and two were actually United Airlines 175 and American Airlines 11 is a bit debatable. Uh, yeah. it's, it's hard to know. I mean, it's quite possible that. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't dismiss the idea of them being remote control. I think remote control is most likely that those planes obviously did take off from their respective airports that morning. Um, they were scheduled to take off their regular flights. They did take off. Um, but both of the planes, in fact, all of the planes um, on that day, all four planes, flew out over areas that um, that were essentially flew through areas, kind of quite relatively small areas of, of, of the country <coughs> that were outside of a kind of radar or transponder signal uh, reception. So there was there was a blind area for all of the planes that they flew through where they were simply, um, they went off, went off the radar. And in those cases, when planes fly through those, those areas, they're just... Um, I mean, they they expect them to appear again on the on the radar very quickly after they pass through that area. But um, there's obviously the possibility that in that moment where the plane is essentially missing or uh, uh, it's not viewable or not uh, trackable, um, that something could be substituted. Uh, something could take take that plane's place, and then yeah. because the, the air traffic controllers simply see it see it go off the radar, then a plane that appears on the flight path coming out the other side of this of this dead area, this dead zone, radar dead zone, well, that's you know, that's it's meant to be signaling the same right. the same uh, the, the same transponder code as as, yeah. as the plane that went in. Yeah. So there's a possibility there for for a switcheroo right. and uh, a plane, uh, two planes to come flying then into uh, into the New York area and hit the World Trade Center towers that were not uh, those actual flights. Uh, of course, then there is a question of what happened to those flights and where are the people on it. I mean, you can you can use your imagination. Use your imagination. Yeah. Somebody they were fed. Uh, you know, what's that pit in Star Wars called? Uh, Sarlacc. I think. Sarlacc. They were fed the Sarlacc. Um, but there's the other bit of evidence of both planes. When both planes just before they hit the World Trade Center towers, there's a flash of light or of something. Before the nose actually hits the facade of the World Trade Center towers, there is a flash of something, and it's kind of anomalous. It shouldn't be there, but it's right in front of the, the nose cone, and it's before it hits the building. I mean, you know, and this is 
archive footage. I mean, if you, if you get into the idea of well, it's been it's been manipulated, the video has been edited to just confuse people. Well, then you can apply that to absolutely everything, and all video evidence is essentially uh, useless. Yeah, you can't rely on it. So you have to make a decision at some point as to whether or not you know how deep into the conspiracy hole you're yeah. going to go, and whether it's all made up or not. But for me, this is kind of like archive footage. I don't see any reason to 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 believe that. Um, it has been manipulated, and it would maybe make sense that something was used, some kind of a, I mean, there's been suggestion that the, there's a laser, it's called a tactical um, high-energy laser that's been developed by DARPA and the U.S. military for quite a long time. It's been operational since 2000 for shooting down missiles. It, it, apparently, it has the power of, you know, a million suns or something like that, uh, but it basically can is used to shoot down uh, it's a laser that chooses to shoot down missiles. Uh, some people have suggested that there was something like that. Uh, that. These planes were equipped with something like that for some reason. I don't know, to maybe break open or to destroy the facade to facilitate the entry of the plane because otherwise it... I don't know. Who knows? But that's all speculation. But there is this evidence of something weird having gone on there on that day. But uh, the thing about the on the ground, there's lots of eyewitness reports uh, of bombs going off in World Trade Center 1 and 2 and in Building 7 before uh, the planes actually hit. So there were people saying that bombs were going off uh, before the planes hit. And if and if you look, the only, I think it's the only video available of the first plane hitting the World Trade Center tower. Um, and it's by two French guys who were in New York at the time and they were making a documentary on the New York Fire Department. So they were kind of embedded with the New York Fire Department and had been for a time previous to 9-11. And on that morning, they filmed the only video of the first plane hitting the first tower. And the reason... no one I don't think anybody has actually questioned this or I haven't read it anywhere or seen anyone question it as to how they got that footage, why they were pointing their camera up at the first... World Trade Center Tower when there was no evidence or no reason for anyone to expect that anything was going on. But they happened to be there. And in the video where you see the plane hitting the the first tower, uh, you see that the streets adjacent to and around the World Trade Center have been kind of cordoned off. There are several fire trucks and several uh, emergency personnel all standing around. And that seems to support the idea uh, or the, the claim of eyewitnesses that bombs have been going off in buildings around the World Trade Center complex. And that would be why the fire department was there already responding to reports of bombs going off. And that would be why the No Day brothers were there because they were out there on, on location with the New York Fire Department. And that's why they got the first uh, the first video of, of, of the plane hitting the World Trade Center. So the other bomb that may or may not have gone off at the World Trade Center 7 mm. is very interesting because we, we, we looked at some video footage today, some original news mm-hmm. footage um, of a reporter who was in the lobby of a building beyond even the World Trade Center. So yeah. you've got the, the, World, the, the two towers, World Trade Center 7, and then this guy is another street over in the next building, so he's a whole block away. Yes, and he's like, I'm reporting from the lobby of this building on mm-hmm. Berkey Street, 
Barclay Street. Barclay yeah. Street. Well, and he's, he's totally obliterated. Yeah. He he in that video he's walking through the lobby of a building and it it seems to be from from the position that he you see outside when he walks outside is that he's in um he's in a place called Thirty West Broadway. It's called um the Fitner Building or something along those lines. And uh, but inside that building, and this building is just to give you an idea. The World Trade, imagine the World Trade Center complex with the two main towers uh, as a square. And on say the north side of that square, there's a road called Ver, um, um, a road called Versi Street. And then you have a row of buildings. You have the Verizon Building. You have uh, you know looking onto that street, looking across at the World Trade Center, Trade Center complex. You have the Verizon Building. You have WCC Seven and the U.S. Post Office. So he's another street back from that in another row of buildings coming out of the lobby of one of those buildings and looking at Building 7. And behind Building 7 is a World Trade Center complex. So he's in, a, in the lobby of a building and he, shows, he points the camera around and all of the windows in that building are blown out. And outside, and this is, again, this is one street back from the World Trade Center complex after the towers have fallen. That is she and, and and that street and those buildings are shielded by a row of of tall buildings, including building seven, which is forty seven stories high. Yet the building that he's in, which is shielded by this row of buildings and on, on two streets back from the World Trade Center complex, has all of its windows blown out. And in the street, there are burnt out cars and buses, like dozens of them, all burnt down to bare metal. Right. It's like a war zone, basically. And he says it's like a war zone. But he's like two, three hundred meters or yards away from the World Trade Center complex after the buildings have fallen and shielded from that by a row of quite quite high, quite tall skyscrapers. But as he walks out, World Trade Center 7 has about two or three floors, maybe floor two and two and three and floor six and eight or something like that. The whole row uh, of windows are all more or less, or most of them are on fire. And this is the... This is the claim that um, this is why Building 7 fell, because it had been burning all day and eventually it did. But the problem is that there were bombs went off. There were reports of bombs having gone off that morning yeah. in those buildings before the World Trade Center towers were hit by planes. So, yeah, the, it, the, the, scale of the, the scale of the destruction on that street suggests a massive bomb yeah. um, in, in or around or right next to World Trade Center 7. I thought that the burning of those cars, though, was suspicious, wasn't it? Well, this this is where it overlaps with another aspect that's weird. Well, less it's weird. The, the the idea of a bomb going off is not so strange, because there are reports of bomb going bombs going off. Toasted cars, up to nearly a mile away, so many blocks away from from the World Trade Center complex. That's something else. That is weird. Right. Where you've got um, a whole row of cars on FDR Drive that are burnt. Some are partially burnt, and they're just sitting there. Then you've got other reports of people who are uh, running away from the scene, so they're not, you know, in direct contact with anything that might be falling debris or flame shooting out or anything. And they are themselves witnessing cars next to them spontaneously catch on fire, yeah. some of their own clothes catch on fire. Right. Yeah, they, there were lots of reports of, I mean, they put them down to uh, cars 
exploding. Their, their fuel tanks exploding because of the heat. But this was going on, on in a wide area around the World Trade Center complex. People have to remember here, okay, there, was a, there, was, there were fires that have been raging for you know an hour, an hour and a half in the upper stories of the World Trade Center. But those buildings collapsed into supposedly a pile of dust and pretty much into their own footprint, right? As everybody has seen, they dustified. They, they were a lot of them, a lot of the material was turned to dust, but they fell directly down and plumes of smoke. You saw the billowing plumes of of dust and ash and smoke and whatever blowing out down different streets. But why would cars two or three streets away be burned? Like, and I mean, dozens and dozens of cars. Why would they all be burned down to the bare metal? I mean, it's it's it, it collapsed in its own footprint, and you're talking about cars several streets away, somehow miraculously being burnt to a crisp. All the cars in the street. But no one no one questions that. No one wonders how that could have happened. Uh, you know, I mean, go with the official story. You know, the buildings collapsed, right? They collapsed because of planes. Right? Planes flew into them, and the fires weakened the steel, and the buildings collapsed, and they collapsed directly down. They didn't fall over and forget about the dustification, whatever. They just collapsed into the footprint. Okay, well, four streets away, 500 yards away, there's every car in the street is burnt to a crisp. Explain it. And the way they were burned was peculiar as well. You have some case, in some cases, the engine is literally liquefied, and the rest of the body is almost pristine. In some cases, some parts are totally burnt, and some other parts, like plastic parts, that should melt first, are still intact. Oh. There is something... It's difficult to account for this whole phenomenon with the technologies that we know. Yep. Yeah. Also, maybe people heard bomb sounds. Well, they heard they heard popping sounds. Well, well let, let's just listen to some... Uh, we were in the lobby, gathering to go up, start doing a search on the upper floors. As we were getting our gear on and making our way to the stairway, there was a uh, heavy-duty explosion. And everybody just started running for the door. Everybody was trapped. Doctors treating the injured here say most of the 100 patients treated so far are suffering not just smoke inhalation and eye damage, but fractures. Many of them have told the doctors that they were responding to the attack on the south tower when they were suddenly trapped by the second explosion, and many of the fractures they're suffering come not from fall and debris, but from the concussive force of the explosion, which slammed them against walls, knocked them to the ground, or slammed them up against their own ambulances. He thinks that there were actually devices that were planted in the building. He says that he probably lost a great many men in those secondary explosions, and he said that there were literally hundreds, if not thousands of people in those two towers when the explosions took place. He said... There was a lot of talk there in New York of, a, of a, another explosion prior to the collapse of the first building. An explosion prior to the collapse of the first building. So there, were lo there are loads and loads of eyewitness reports, and it's a cross-section. It's from firefighters to ordinary people, and it's hard to put it all down to kind of plants or anything like that. There does seem to have been bombs, a lot of bombs, going off in the basements, in the basement area, in the subsections, and in the lobbies, uh, and you know, even in the, in the floors, few floors up from the ground. Mm in both uh, World Trade Center towers. Um, and the only reason I can think of as to why they would do that would be to, you know, plausibly be able to say that, you know, damage was to the entire structure. You know, the plane hit, you know, 97, 90-some floors up. 
somehow that transferred explosive material or an explosive force down to the lobby and down to the basement. You know, I mean, it's amazing that the, the official report ignores all of this. They're, they're simply ignoring people's testimony, people who are there, people who are, who, who are on camera uh, from that day coming out and speaking to several different news agencies and telling them bombs went off. We were fire, firefighters. Who's going who's gonna, to uh, uh, not believe a firefighter? Why, why, would he, why would he, you know, these are, these are kind of hardened New Yorkers who are firefighters, have been firefighters for, for most of their lives, basically, and they have no reason to lie, but they're saying that they, they, they were in the buildings, in the lobbies, in the basements, and the place blew up down below. I mean, the, the elevators blew out. Uh, not just the elevators, but the sub-basements just were destroyed. Some of them went down to the, to, the, to the basement, and it was destroyed. They said it was like a bomb had gone off. A bomb must have gone off in the basement level. So explain that one. Explain it. How did that happen? How does a bomb or... How does the basement of a building suffer the effects of what looks like a large bomb as a result of a plane hitting a thousand feet above it? And there's also testimonies of firefighters reporting oxygen tanks exploding. Very close to them, the firefighters said it was not this hot. I mean, if they were still here to testify, obviously it was not this hot. And despite this moderate temperature, oxygen tanks were exploding. It's as if a, the technology used was somehow material-specific. Well, I think we can, we can say that there was a mix of technologies used. Yeah. So you had conventional weaponry, uh, bombs. Then you had... Um, th- there is evidence for having found this... Uh, thermite? thermite. In um, dust samples taken from from the area, and so that's getting exotic. And then there seems to be another layer of technology yeah. over and above that. Well, that's the problem. People argue between thermite, yeah. <clears throat> nanothermite, and Judy Woods kind of dustification, mm-hmm. exotic energy, directed energy weapons. So when they all they have to go, is, all they have to do is go. Well, okay, if there's evidence for all three, well then all three were used. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive, but. People are getting into lame wars because over which part. There could have been different ideas about how to do it. And like we were talking about these different levels, you know, at, at a certain level, they said, oh, the building's not going to fall down. Let's help it out. I mean, because maybe, you know, that's what they intended. They intended to blow up the base and have it tip over mm-hmm. or something like that. Well, yeah, if you go back to 1993, yeah. um, two massive bombs, two or one, two, I think one in each tower went off in the basement. Mm-hmm. Of course, the building might have jarred a little, but mm-hmm. it didn't. Do any more damage than? But I think those bombs obviously tie quite well into the idea that it was a terrorist attack into the official story, even if they can't explain it. Even if the official story only says that the 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 9/11 attacks involved planes being flown into the buildings, and they say nothing about any any other team. Mm -hmm. Well, because maybe there's no evidence for it, or they don't they didn't prepare the evidence for it, or well, that's the thing. People can fill in the gaps and fall back on oh bomb. Well, bomb terrorists. I mean, okay, that makes sense. But when you throw in all the other evidence, and you're talking about something that technology that's way beyond that, that's that's a whole other. Yeah, that's a whole other. I think at a, it's at that level where there's a, a cross communication or a, discommun- uh, a miscommunication or a uh, a lack of. Uh, of a cohesive kind of group yeah. of conspirators, you know, where some of them were involved in 
doing something and maybe didn't know that the justification, for example, was going to happen. And, uh, you know, ultimately they were just left with a, a problem of, you know, well, we didn't actually plan for this, you know. I mean, they were planning for, maybe they didn't even know that, you know, planes were going to be flown into the into the towers, you know. I mean, there seems to have been so much going on that day that that a lot of stuff that didn't actually come off, like Neil mentioned the fire in the White House, there was also a, a fire or a bomb alert on the at the Capitol building, I think a fire at the Capitol building. Yeah, and they evacuated and, everyone. And the mall. You know, there was stuff going on all over the place that, I mean, they haven't, they just decided not to, not, to, not, to, not to answer. Here's my question, and it's, it's, I'm suspicious, I'm still suspicious. I don't, I don't know, but I'm very suspicious about the whole, whole thing. Because it would have served their purposes for their official explanation in every way if they would have acknowledged the existence of bombs. Because every person who said, well, they couldn't have brought the towers down, all they had to do was say, well, they also planted very big bombs. Mm. And there's no reason for them not to have capitalized on the existence of bombs. Not only that, but it would have, been, it would have increased the security concern because not only did they take over the airplanes, but also they managed to plant bombs. They planted these big bombs. And they could have said they were any kind of like super bombs and they had access to super thermo. I mean, why didn't they capitalize on it? It just sounds it sounds a little bit strange that they wouldn't have said, oh, and there were bombs. They might have decided that would take the investigation places they didn't want to go. For example, the person in charge of security for the World Trade Center complex was the brother of then President George Bush. Right. So where was he? What was going yeah. on? How come he didn't see this coming? You can imagine the questions being it's, asked. It's one, it's one thing, because the, the idea of planes, nobody can, although there's, nobody can budget for that. Nobody can say, you should have taken care of that, even though they've claimed since that Bush was warned, or uh, the Bush government was warned about right. a plot to attack with planes, hijack planes, etc. But it's one thing to, uh, I mean, to fly, to fly planes into a building, that just comes out of the blue, literally. Um, but to plant bombs in a building in, in the World Trade Center complex in the basement of buildings, someone has to kind of answer that. You know, how did that happen? CCTV, CCTV footage, all that kind of stuff. You know, um, I don't know. Maybe that's just one possibility of why they can say let's just ignore that. I mean, the buildings collapsed. That's enough. That'll you know. I mean, we've got the planes, we've got the hijackers, we've got the collapse of buildings. We're going to war. You know, let's just. Let's just move on quickly oh, from the yeah. yeah. Let's just move on from the bombing thing, you know. They had a very sloppy explanation for World Trade Center Seven. Nothing official, but it was a statement from um, Silverstein, the guy who Larry Silverstein. Larry Silverstein, I think he owned or had just sold. No, he had just bought and they got an insurance contract. That's right for the whole complex. Yes, and he was interviewed maybe months after about what had happened there, but this building in particular, number seven. And he said, well, yeah, um, <clears throat> there were fires, blah, blah, blah. We, we, we have to make decisions, so we decided, we decided to pull it, and we watched the building go down. Uh, wait a minute. You decide to pull it. Pull it is a demolition term. You decide to yeah. demolish the building, That's but you don't said. decide, and then it just happens five minutes later. You must plan it in advance. It takes days, and it's almost impossible to conduct if there's a fire going on in the water center seven. So of course, a, yeah, it takes a weeks. Contradiction. It takes weeks, according to demolition experts, yeah. you know, uh, to do it properly. 
And uh, so that alone, that's why a lot of people are focusing on the World Trade Center 7 because it stands out. It looks to anybody, with to experts and to layperson alike, it looks exactly like a controlled demolition. I mean, you can compare it to all sorts of other uh, collapses of buildings where it kind of pinches in the middle and just falls straight down. There's no justification, no lathering, despite what Judy Wood claims. There's no lathering of World Trade Center 7. That's that's um, to me that's smoke. Uh, because the building has literally been on fire for uh, about you know six seven hours, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's burning quite a lot. But it's interesting that it's been burning for six or seven hours and it hasn't collapsed on its own. Uh, because the point being that if it collapsed from fire, it wouldn't collapse in the way that it seemed to collapse in the video. Which, according to demolition experts and anybody who's seen a building fall, is that it the the support columns. Are not simultaneously mm. uh, were were blown, so that the building falls directly down and it pinches right in the middle as well, and you see that happening, you know. So, um, I mean, that's why people are focusing on it because the evidence is that it was brought down by controlled demolition, and that takes weeks. So, somebody weeks in advance set that building up. To uh, I mean, that was a spook. That was spook central. That building it was pretty much totally. owned, owned by all of the intel kind of and pseudo intel. It was the, the New York offices of the FBI. It was the second largest after Langley um, set of offices for the CIA. It was the offices for Secret Services in New York. It was the office for the SEC, which is really interesting because they had a a lot of files going back decades. The SEC basically investigated financial corruption and fraud in the United States. Mm. And it destroyed, it supposedly, it, I don't buy this, but they, they used that then as cover because, oh, we lost a lot of files on open cases. Mm-hmm. We're just going to, and, and given the national tragedy that's just happened, we're just going to give a pass on all these companies. I don't have any names. <laughs> McLean something. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of these crooks who are actually involved in the cleanup operation, the physical cleanup operation mm-hmm. of, of, of 9-11, of yeah. the World Trade Center complex, yeah. who got a free pass mm-hmm. on case clothes. Where mm-hmm. we're, we're on not fraud. Gonna look. Yeah. So it seemed to be, when Silverstein is saying we're going to pull this building, it means we're going to close the file as well yeah. on a whole lot of leads. And in terms of keeping that thing secret, you know, especially for... Intel agency types, I mean, the CIA employs a lot of people, the FBI employs a lot of people, and there's a lot of CIA and FBI and NSA and Secret Service employees in that building in World Trade Center 7. So we're suggesting that it was prepped weeks and weeks, maybe months in advance uh, at a leisurely pace. So the question is, but how could they have kept that secret? I mean, when you're private building for demolition, how are you going to keep it secret? But then you, you remember that well, it's populated by a bunch of spooks. <laughs> so how hard is it to convince an FBI or CIA guy that, you know, listen, we're doing something kind of uh, top secret here. Can you take the day off or can you go home early tonight? And he's going to go, hmm, that's suspicious. No, tell everybody. No, he's going to go, yeah, business as usual. That's what we do. You know, it's like surprising for a bunch of FBI agents to be told, listen, make yourself scarce. We're doing something private, you know, kind of secret. Uh, secret service type stuff you know the stuff you do well we're doing it and so just go away and they're going to go okay yeah no problem it's not like they're an, or, an ordinary member of the of the public you know that would might kind of think something's going on here I'm going to report this to the police no they've got they've signed an oath of secrecy and they expect the world that they live in to be 
And the more secret and spooky and, uh, you know, top secret it, it appears to be, the happier they are because that's what they signed on for. They all signed on to be James Bond, right? Just going back to the possible use of uh, various technologies, uh, that would be an interesting way to divide the truth movements. But I get, because I guess when you plan such an operation, you know that there will be inquiries, there will be questions raised. And having maybe termite, nanothermites, bombs, planes, exotic technologies is one of the best ways to drive a wage yeah. between the truthers and to create fights amongst the only one who could yeah. get close to the truth. Yeah, it's like, it's like an orgy of evidence. There's all of this conflicting evidence everywhere. It's like they tried to do everything. So they just threw everything at it. Yeah. You know, just for the specific purpose of each person would pick something out and say, oh, that was the cause, you know? Well, um, I think it was Al Borelli saying that uh, investigating the JFK assassination is like going down a black hole. Yeah. And I think 9 11 is already at that. Yeah. But we also know that, looking back at trying to understand what happened to JFK, that that's part of the operation. Exactly. Um, False leads, false trails. Yeah, you set it up yeah. in advance. You sheep dip people, yeah. and and they don't even have to do that much of it because they know that people will. Yeah, it'll run organically. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, we have a call here, so let's see what um, who we've got in the line. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, I'm Gary. I'm calling from Tucson, Arizona. Hi, um, Gary. I know you. Welcome. Hi. Um, I I know you guys kind of moved on on the topic and everything, but. Um, I was thinking about how, you know, you were talking before about the, you know, the sort of the choice between are, are people choosing to be evil or are they choosing to be good and all that kind of stuff. But it seems to me like your average person who's come across the, the inconsistencies with 9-11 and then choosing to just go back to sleep, it's probably not so much a choice between, oh, I want to choose to be good or I want to choose to be evil. I think it's more along the lines of helplessness that they feel helpless against it. I mean, it's like yep. the, the JFK thing where it's like, hey, if they can mm-hmm. do this to the president of the United States, what can Absolutely. they do to me? Yeah. In a lot of circumstances, yeah. In a lot of circumstances, yeah. So but there are a lot there's of... A, there's an, an implicit understanding from people uh, that, that, um, that this is very dangerous. You're talking about people being murdered. You're talking about, like in JFK or 9-11, you're talking about the implication there is if they follow the follow the theory or follow the logic, the end result is that my government just killed a bunch of civilians to get to do what they wanted to do. So am I really going to stick my neck out too far in trying to investigate this or do something about it? Because uh, it's a no-brainer if I do it. If I do that too much, I'm going to end up in the same same way. In all fairness, that person recognizes the problem. I mean, if to feel helpless, mm-hmm. they have to realize that there is a force uh, against which they mm-hmm. are, you know, impotent. And we're talking yeah. about more like the people who uh, who delighted and and are really proactive in pursuing mm-hmm. those damn conspiracy theories, those anti-Americans, those blah 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 blah. And we're talking about mm-hmm. those type of people. We're talking about those who make like a, a choice for for evil. Yeah. Um, the person who just doesn't say anything and puts their head down because they recognize that this is a dangerous situation, that's that's a person who at least recognizes that there's something bad going on and that they're in danger, and therefore they must be in danger from something, and that something is, is very important. And I think it's done by design to some extent. When you look at the 
Patriot Act, Badu's law allowing the authorities to detain, mm -hmm. arrest, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, torture basically any individual. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a not-so-subtle message sent to the whole population. If you cross the line, you might be one of the inmates. Well, that's that's what the Abu Ghraib revelations were all about. It was yeah. less about them being afraid of prosecution and more about this is how far we're willing to go. You don't want to you don't want to mess mm -hmm. with us. Mm -hmm. And this whole one's well, Bay thing. I think it's also beyond just personal safety too, uh, in the sense that it sure seems like they've cornered the market on you know, just the things in life that your average person uh, appreciates, you know, like their family and their children. So, you know, like how you can almost have your kids taken away for practically anything that you do. So they're, you're, they may not just only be thinking about themselves in terms of their helplessness, mm -hmm. but their family too. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. They've done a real number on people, you know, and it's by design, mm -hmm. and I can't help but think it's by design whether it's uh, – designed as a part of uh, a particular type of nature these people have so they themselves don't plan it long term in advance but it's simply a, a an outplaying of their own inner nature that leads to these kind of situations but they really have put people in a position where uh, it's very difficult for them to maneuver or to do anything other than kind of keep their head down and keep their mouth shut right. that the average person you can't blame too many people for wanting to, to just do that and get on mm -hmm. with their lives and also the implications I think people tend to feel or intuit the implications of the kind of things that we're talking about here, like, for example, 9-11 being an inside job or whatever. There, when, when you say that, I think people, a lot of people who, who are half intelligent, intuit where that leads, you know, without even going through the process bit by bit and following, you know, what it would involve or what it implies, they kind of just feel it viscerally that this is really bad. If I... You know what you're what we're suggesting nine eleven is an inside job really just destroys my whole world, my whole life my, it mm -hmm. destroys my society, it destroys everything I believe in it destroys my sense of security because you're saying that the people who I kind of uh, pretty much accept as being the people who take care of me or, or who run society it's a structure that i'm that I fit into and I'm quite comfortable in that having somebody look after the important decisions and stuff. You're suggesting that that all needs to be taken away or that these people aren't working for the benefit of, of, of us all, or at least they're just, at least they're not doing too much harm. I mean, they, sure, they might be corrupt and liars, but they're not going to go and kill us all, you know? But for people mm -hmm. to have to contemplate that, contemplate that just, uh, it's kind of, I can understand why people see it as, you know, it's kind of almost the end of their, their cozy, comfortable life. And like you said, it's for their the families and know. friends. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we uh, we should emphasize that safety is much more important to us than we intellectually think as adults. Yeah, the emotional mm -hmm. part in us, the children part in us, uh, consider safety mm -hmm. as the most, by far, as the most important feature, and our whole society, our whole psyche is based on the illusory belief that that is the state, the authorities that provide this safety. So acknowledging 9-11 as an inside job first destroyed the illusion 
that's it. The authorities are here to destroy us. And two, they destroy our illusion of safety, which is, as I said previously, the most important thing. So as Joe uh, mentioned, uh, we're touching here to very fundamental psychological and conscious processes. Yeah, I mean, safety is, of course, the one thing that can never be guaranteed. It's the one thing that you never have. I mean, you're purchasing something you can never possess from a from a group of individuals who could never provide it anyway. I mean, so it's the ultimate sort of scam job. It's worse than that. I think uh, the, the very same authority that we think provides safety are the one who threaten our safety. You see how twisted yeah. it is. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, government is, in a certain sense, a great big con game, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- those those same fears, uh, or that same understanding of people's need for security, and uh, you know, playing on on those fears that people have of their family and and society, and you know, just basically a comfortable life and it all falling apart. Um, that the understanding that understanding of human psychology was at play in planning out the nine eleven attacks because of the psychological or the emotional effect it had on people. And then the same kind of psychological and emotional uh, mechanisms are at work in anybody who tries to question the official story. So it's essentially a mind job, you know, on most people. It's a a psychological and emotional manipulation on a grand scale. Uh, And it's quite masterful, you know. Gary... I have a question. Yeah. Uh, were you in, sure. in Tucson, Arizona, when the uh, 9/11 occurred? Uh, actually, no, I wasn't. I was like in Wheaton, Illinois. I was actually working for the Theosophical Society in America at the time, so I was actually at work when it happened. But they had like a communal TV, so we all like sat around and watched it happen. And what happened? What was the reaction? Um, well, actually, I mean, my reaction was at first anger, but I, I think a lot of people were were actually sad. They were crying, you know. They were like, "Oh my, what what happened?" You know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, it was... my first thought was just just what what on earth could cause this to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very very traumatic for a lot of people, you know, especially people very mm-hmm. close to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. But well, I was also going to say the second half of that sort of mind job is, you know, maybe somewhere along the lines due to like the 1980s where it was the me generation, where yeah. people also feel helpless to the things that they like. You know, I'm 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 helpless. I love this music. I can't help but love this music. I love this TV show. I can't help it. You know, so the choices between either look at the hard reality of the facts and the, you know, the inconsistencies, or I'm helpless to watch this TV show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, of those two, you chose to look at the hard facts of reality? Uh, well, I, I really, I, I choose to sort of segment my day. So like I go out and I work on my garden in the morning when it's cool and then you know, I come in and I do whatever computer work I can get done during the, the hot part of the day. And sometime in the evening I start, you know, looking at, at other, you know, uh, alternative media sources. And then sometime just before sunset I go back out in the garden. So I just kind of segment my life. <laughs> you know, I give just enough time to do a little bit of everything in any given day. 
Uh-huh. Well, that sounds like a very healthy way to approach it because you you cannot just be sitting there and staring it in the face all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. in a way, it it it's it, it is more than enough to at least be aware of it and mm-hmm. to at least help others if they come to you in that same state of helplessness um, to talk them through it. Because this is ultimately, as we've been saying, it's a traumatic event that people mm-hmm. need to heal from, at least those who choose to. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the daily life does not change. We, we still have our things to do. We, we have to, to survive. I mean, I still watch TV mm-hmm. and have of some projects and stuff like that. I mean... You can't do it all the time, but it, it's kind of like, you know, it takes a lot of little termites to eat away the, the structure of a house. And, you know, each one takes a couple of bites and, and does his, his little duty, you know, and that's kind of the way you got to look at it. You know, you just... It takes even more nanothermites to eat the all water center. Exactly. And uh, Gary, I have another question. Um, sure. You've been living in the U.S. since uh, 2001. For you, in the American society, what is the most dominant change you notice between the pre-9-11 and uh, post-9-11? Um, well, I mean, I I think probably the most predominant change is perhaps the, the notion that, you know, whereas it, it kind of used to be, it was like, oh, well, this was white America's America, you know, and all those other, you know, people, they're not, they're not part of America. I think we've all realized it's nobody's America, you know, because, mm-hmm. like, even you don't even have to go back all the way to 9-11. I mean, you can just look at the difference between uh, now and 2008 at how, like, you know, in 2008 we had that Joe the plumber guy who's neither Joe nor a plumber. And yeah. he was broke, but he identified with he was going to be a millionaire someday. And I don't even think anybody thinks that anymore. I think we're now all self-identifying with the fact that, gee, there really is just all of us in the underclass, and there's those other guys out there running everything. And what can mm-hmm. we do about it? Yeah, the death of the American dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. well, yeah, it's it's the death of an illusion. Um, and mm-hmm. the, no matter how hard it it seems for a while. Life still goes on, it, and it, it is an illusion we have to get over. It. The illusion was that the state is there to protect us. Um, it's almost like if you look at it in, in even a bigger picture, it's an unintended consequence of this 9-11 event that it is giving people the choice to grow up, you know, to become more integrated, become more whole, to see yeah. past illusions that they've believed their whole life. Yeah. Yeah. All well, right, Gary. Thanks. So, thanks for your time and uh, love your show. Thanks for your call. Okay. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Gary. Yep. Thank you. Bye. 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 Yeah. The other thing about the World Trade Center, though, is the uh, missing people. There's something like 1,600 missing people. That's, I think, approximately half pe- half the number of people have never been found. And there's some statistics here of um, there were fewer than 300 whole bodies found. Uh, and fewer than 1,600 people um, were identified. So approximately half the people who were killed were not identified. Um, 800 of the victims, of those victims that were identified, were only identified by DNA. Mm -hmm. (coughs) That means that the pieces 
that they found of them were too small to be identifiable. Uh, there were 20,000 pieces of bodies found. 6,000 of those pieces were small enough to fit into test tubes. And there were 10,000 unidentified pieces frozen for future analysis. So as much as the, as the towers were dustified, the people were dustified. I mean, you put a bunch of people in a building and collapse it. You're going to find mainly large parts of bodies, if not whole bodies, right, crushed, etc. But, you know, a human body doesn't get shredded right. unless you put it into a wood chipper or something like that. I mean, it does. you don't get these types of bone fragments that were found, not just on the ground, but on the tops of other buildings. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of them found on the tops of other buildings. So how do you explain that, you know? Wasn't how do you explain the disintegration, almost, of, of human bodies as a result of a building collapse? I vaguely remember a quote from, from like, an expert who, who worked in that kind of field of reassembling bodies after, like, explosions and stuff, and he said that it was actually rather strange that they didn't find more. He said that he had never worked on a project where they didn't recover yeah. enough material to account for everybody, at least. I think that he said that it was a very high amount of recovery, I don't remember the exact quote. There's no mechanical reason for, you know, or physical reason for it to, to, to for that to have happened. Not the traditional ones. Uh, another um, strange thing that was mentioned is the behavior of the jumpers and uh, the fact that several uh, people working in the water center that this day were hanging out of the windows and taking off their clothes. Mm-hmm. Although heat was present and clothes protect from the heat. So usually when you're subjected to high temperature, you tend to keep your clothes. As a protection, yeah. Yeah. That was another ODT. We have another call here, so we'll go ahead and take it. Hi, caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hello. uh, My name is Charles. I'm calling from Missoula, Montana. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the show. Hi, Charles. Hi, guys. Hey, I just uh, it was as you were talking. I just uh, it brought uh, you know this large subject, of course, that we're talking about. But uh, it reminded me of like my dad's day, where um, yeah, the corporations were taking money. Um, you know, the same old games were going. Well, let's go back. Let's go back to serfdom, right? Where the lords took most of everything the serf created and gave them just a little bit of food to survive. Mm-hmm. And then all the things that happened after that, there was a point there where we were all getting part of the, the wealth. You could conceptually say, well, we stole a lot from the Native Americans and stuff like that. But it was mm-hmm. all getting spread around there for a while. And then in my dad's day, which was back in the you know 50s, 60s, uh, you know the corporation you went, you, you worked for the corporation, you were basically a serf, but you got more for for what you got some of what what the corporation was making, and now mm-hmm. it just seems to be across the board cancer that they're taking everything, they're not giving anything back, they're they're poisoning our food, of course, but I mean just in the, the sheer wealth, so these. Uh, psychopaths that are running these you know I don't really know who the guys that run the whole show is it two families is it three is it a hundred corporations but clearly the multinational corporations and military industrial complex I mean they're becoming blatant they don't give a damn about us anymore and they're taking all the money and then they're murdering people mm-hmm. anyways that was kind of the drift <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we talked about that uh, that's a few days a few days ago about this uh, quote-unquote golden age of the U.S. in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they they are getting more blatant. Uh, 
they apparently don't care as much anymore about covering it up. And I think a part of the reason for that is that as they've gone along, they've been testing the waters. They've been ever more flagrantly kind of pushing the boundaries, uh, you know, in terms of abuse of people and abuse of power and cronyism and corruption. And when people don't respond, Right. And it's not to, it's not it's not totally to blame. Uh, the people aren't totally right. to blame for that in the sense that people aren't just rolling over and saying, "Oh well, what can I do?" It's that people are, while they're abusing the people and and, and enriching themselves, they're also putting in place uh, propaganda to try and convince the people that that's not what's happening. So the people are kind of being held in this situation. You know, they're doing their best to try and at the same time abuse people uh, as. While they're trying to abuse, or while they are abusing people and abusing the privileges, they are trying to convince people that that's not what's happening. Mm-hmm. And they have a pretty yeah. sophisticated, uh, you know, propaganda machine to do that. Well, absolutely, and there's no question. I mean, you look into which I've been doing with the, you know, the fortunate aspect of the internet where you can research a lot of data. And you get back into the nonprofit foundations that were investigated years ago, and they found out, you know, that they had this agenda getting into the school systems to brainwash people. And there's that. There's courses, all the MK Ultra stuff, up in Quebec where they were shocking people. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, shock doctrine that Naomi Klein wrote that book about, mm-hmm. uh, where yeah. it goes into. I mean, it's across the board. They've been working with this to, to actually. Uh, control the people, you know, make them even more uh, slave-like. But I think, and that was kind of the point I was getting at as well, is that I think even with all that stuff, even with poisoning the food and making people thumb the fluoride, even with the, 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 the what I see too now, <clears throat> there's another point I wanted to make if I may, um, is this politically correct as part of this um, brainwashing where uh, mm-hmm. it used to be the individual. Individualism was really big in the U.S. Uh, when the you know, Western expansion and everything. And uh, then it became this thing as, you know, this, this uh, propaganda against individualism, that we're this collective and you mm-hmm. can't have a thought that we all don't have or you're like weird. And I think right. part of this political correctness has been moved from really caring about social issues to fashion, mm. you know, through MTV or various TV mm. shows where it's all being on the group think. Are you cool? Are you hip? And right. not looking any deeper than that. And those are mm-hmm. very easily manipulated. Yeah. yeah diversion, you know? diversion from the important topics. Yeah, I'm, you got Consumerism. On on the one hand, they they promote uh, as that there's a very good documentary called The Century of the Self, <laughs> where way back as far as the 30s, uh, a nephew of Freud's Edward Bernays was contracted right. by the, the government at the time to kind of uh, to try and promote uh, individualism uh, or a, a focus on the self and a, you know consumerism essentially. It was it was to right. support uh, corporations to support people or to get people to buy and to think about themselves and what they need and that things will make them happy. Uh, so at that level, they, they force people into a, essentially a selfishness and a me, me, me attitude. But then, so that's at an individual level, but at a national level, they're then expected to to have this kind of group think where we're, it's a, we're all American, it's a collective 
it's almost like at the t- at the upper level, it's kind of almost like a, a communism type thing. Yeah. From from a national from a national ideology point of view, but at the personal level, it's a capitalistic kind of like feed yourself type of thing. Every man for himself, you know, dog eat dog. dog. All right. So, so the thing is, is like say for instance, reading like Roman history, it's kind of interesting that that type of rhetoric about this whole community thing and, go, you know, group uh, were Romans, Roman citizenship, all this stuff. So it actually seems that that kind of social grouping is actually um, is natural to humanity, that, that we want to form extended social networks, actually, is, is sort of our thing. And it actually the rugged individualism, the sort of like all about yourself thing, that it, it kind of didn't work in a certain sense. And so now they seem to be trying to, to exploit uh, this other thing about the trying to enforce groupthink and go along to get along that they that the, the individualism didn't work. So I mean, throughout history, if you look throughout history, you see these type of movements, and eventually what happens is the people start collecting together in like this giant mass of looking themselves as you know we're the 99 percent. That that's a natural sort of thing. People were the 99 percent. They're the one percent, and, and they did the same type of things in, in Rome. So there's but, also <clears throat> I suppose there are several ways of crystallizing a collective dynamics. There are positive ways when it's spontaneous, bottom-up, when people materialize this need, this fundamental needs to share, be together, learn together, help each other, but there is also more nef- more nefarious way of uh, materializing collective dynamics. Um, that's what we are see- seeing currently, when actually you you base the, the dynamic collective dynamics on on fear or on exclusion, on exclusivity, mm-hmm. uh, the Patriot Act, Patriot. Yeah. Between the line, the message is: if you don't agree with our politics, you're against us. If you're not with us, you're against us. Um, that's a totally different. And term. if you're against us, you're against your country. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're unpatriotic. You, 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 unpatriot. you can see how it's been subverted. You know, the association is saying it's a natural tendency in human beings to want to be part of a group and to work together and to collaborate and to see themselves as as a community, you know. But that desire, that natural human tendency has been subverted and projected onto the state so that everybody's seen as, you know, a group under the state, under one nation, under God and under the government. Indivisible. Yeah, indivisible under God and under the government and therefore all of that kind of like that that enthusiasm for that community minded stuff which should be directed at people helping each other in their local communities is projected or subverted and projected up onto the state to glorify the elite, essentially, and to make right. people serve the elite. And then at the same time, they are subverting that. In another way, they are subverting that, ten- that community-mindedness by forcing people, or they have been forcing people for many years, to be consumeristic and the century of the self type of thing, right. be for yourself. So on, in two ways, they have been working to prevent that from ever uh, you know, coming to fruition or, or, or manifesting itself in American society because ultimately the result would be that people would see that it really is us against them because right. we are the people who don't have a lot of money and don't have a lot of power and these right. few people do and they're abusing us. We're not really, we're not happy, we're not, uh, we're not well off in any sense, in any real sense. So I wanted to make a point about the other thing that he said, you know, um, have you read uh, a book called Political Ponderology? You can get it uh, online at Amazon. Um, and it kind of talks about psychopaths and, and how they work. And, and you kind of have to see those types of people as like a disease in the body. When you first contract the disease, 
it has it starts to infect and infect and infect different systems. And at a certain point, of course, you become feverish and you collapse, and then you die. You know, and the disease, of course, is going to kill itself. It destroys the body. Psychopaths are kind of like that. You know, when you're saying back in the 50s, it wasn't quite so bad, and it's just because they hadn't infected the structures to the level that they have today, and they just keep they keep uh, adjusting people like themselves up into positions of power. They find and and sift through all of the people to find those who have you know, who are like-minded as them, they put them up into a position here, he's the director, the minister, the secretary, all this different stuff, and they keep doing that, and they keep just infecting and infecting the system until eventually they cause it to collapse, and this is kind of like what happens throughout history, and, and every kind of big empire, it, it runs for, for probably a couple hundred years, and then, you know, these psychopaths, they finally get into power, and then they cause the system to collapse, and then it all starts all over again. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, what what I think you're seeing when you say, like, well, back in the day, it wasn't quite so bad, but now today it's, you know, different. Yeah, yeah. just about, um, Charles, you were mentioning the, the U.S. of your father during the 50s and the 60s. It was probably less worse than now, but we have to keep in mind that uh, I think the relative wealth exhibited by the U.S. middle class in the 50s and the 60s was just a consequence of the emergence of the modern empire that the U.S. is now, collecting a lot of resources from foreign countries that were mostly going in the U.S. elite pockets and a few leftovers that was enriching, quote-unquote, the the U.S. workers. It's been brewing, basically. In the 50s and 60s, it was brewing in the background, and it it wasn't quite, you know, it hadn't come to the boil, let's say, but it has kind of done today. You know, it, today we're seeing the result of that process that was has been ongoing for the past forty or fifty years, and it's not it's not pretty, you know. And it's the thing is that people believe the history of America as it's written, and you have to understand that you are not living in the same America that was founded on supposedly seventeen seventy six. That America died during the Civil War, and a new one came about. There was there was a regime change, and there was a change in a lot of different things. And then that one again died, you know, with the major world, with the, the uh, what is it, the, the Depression. And then after the Depression, another one was kind of born. And then there was this major world war, which eliminated a lot of people, and also specifically in Europe and its competing countries. And suddenly America was basically the big dog in the world. And so there was a lot more access and control of resources because there was so much decimation in Europe that America, who hadn't suffered, you know, all of all of that death and destruction and bombing was suddenly well positioned and so it seems like in the 50s things were very good but they were very good kind of on accident you know it was simply because everywhere else was so bad yeah <laughs> that america kind of couldn't help but have its fingers in all these pies and was needed and was getting all this money and had access to all this different wealth and and everybody needed to pump up america because they were now afraid of russia and all these different things anyway <clears throat> one thing that um, it's true in uh, Charles' analysis is uh, this downward spiral dynamics. And I think one specific of the psychopathic mind is that it's never enough. There's in a ne- never enough money, never enough power. Uh, greed is limitless. So the only way to stop this uh, endless run um, is in the hands of human beings. Psychopaths are not equipped to have any kind of boundary in this field. I yeah. 
I think that since we started the show talking about conspiracy theories, we should end it with a few words on that topic from everyone's favorite dead comedian, George Carlin. Carlin. Good. Like slaves and say, George, I voted. The, the limits of debate in this country are, 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 are established before the debate even begins. And everyone else is marginalized and made to seem either to be communist or some sort of disloyal person. A kook, there's a word. And now it's conspiracy. See, they've made that something that, that, is, that is, should, should not be even entertained for a minute, that powerful people might get together and have a plan. Doesn't happen. You're a kook. You're a conspiracy buff. I think the puppet on the right shares my beliefs. I think the puppet on the left is more to my liking. Hey, wait a minute. There's one guy holding up both puppets. Shut up. Go back to bed, America. Your government is in control. Here's love connection. Watch this. It gets fat and stupid. By the way, keep drinking beer, you fucking morons. No fucking way! I can't even see the road! Shit, they're no, lying to us! Fuck! Where are they? There's no fucking way! We have figured it out. Go back to bed, America. Your government has figured out how it all transpired. Go back to well, you get the gist of that. He uh, That's actually uh, Bill Hicks as opposed to George Carlin. I don't know where George Carlin... The first Carlin... one was George Carlin. Yes, it was George Carlin. Okay, George and then... Uh, and then Bill Hicks. And then Both Bill... of them conspiracy guys. Yeah, they had some uh, hard-hitting truths to, uh, well, my, to my, convey to the American people. My favorite quote from, from George Carlin is, uh, that's why it's called the American Dream, because mm. you have to be asleep <laughs> to believe it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you know, we did the show because... It's 9-11 time. It's that time of the year. Uh, it's the 8th of September, but you know, next next weekend will be the 15th of September, and we've missed it. So if we were going to do an 9-11 show, it was going to be it was going to be this week. Um, 9-11 has been done to death, really, over the past 12 years. And yeah. you know, you can go into all the details, and you know, it may be interesting for some people, but um, the overall truth of what 9-11 was and what it has done should be pretty clear to anybody who, you know, even just has a cursory look at the evidence, uh, even just look at the evidence of what has been done as a result of 9-11. You don't even have to investigate 9-11. Just look at what has been done in its name. And you get the idea that it certainly, uh, uh, you know, was a manipulation, at least uh, to some degree. And it may be... It may have been the event that signals that history will show signaled the ultimate demise of this stage in human civilization or evolution, but I would I would say at the very best in the very best case that there's probably about another eight more years of the illusion. <clears throat> at the absolutely best edge case before it all comes tumbling down because that's kind of like the way it is. There's one of these big kind of events and the fear broker guys come in. They do this whole thing. You know, they rape liberty left, right, and center, mm-hmm. oppress the people, do this stuff, start up a whole bunch of wars, make a whole ungodly amount of money. Eventually, people start being, wait a minute, and they just fall 
You know, I mean, eventually they just they they eat the government from within. It becomes so corrupt that all of the beams rot and it collapses with them in, inside and and kills everybody, even the innocent people around. And then we all sit there and we look and say, oh, that really sucked. Uh, let's create another government. Yeah. And then they do, and then it starts all over again. It takes maybe a hundred years, and you know, I mean, and round and round it goes. And around and around it goes. Next week we're going to have. Uh, hopefully, Ellen Brown has agreed to come on. Ellen Brown's the author of Web of Debt, and we'll be asking her all about the monetary system, the monetary system, and how it enslaves us. Yeah, she's she's the one to ask because she's decoded their language into uh-huh. simple speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah. Okay, we're going to leave it there, guys. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for our callers. We will be back next week, as Neil has just said, hopefully with Alan Brown. Until then, have a good one. Nice day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Au revoir.